Welcome everybody to the Banjo Studio Podcast. This week we're at episode 24 and we have Chad Kapodic from the Deering Banjo Company. Chad's been at Deering Banjos for 27 years. Um, he's the master builder over at Deering and he's probably built more banjos than anybody else who's currently actively building banjos on a day-to-day basis today. Um, he has really great knowledge of uh, banjo setup, banjo building. We get into it and you're sure to learn something today uh, if you're looking to tweak your banjo and get it sounding great. Uh, Chad is a great race resource. So here we go with Chad Kapodic from Deering Banjos. Hey everyone, uh, we're here today with Chad Kapodic from the Deering Banjo Company. Um, what is your role exactly at, at Deering, Chad, just so I don't mistake? Uh, so, so as of now, my official title is the master builder. Uh, I've been building here for Deering for 27 years now, and uh, I'm in charge of doing uh, all the custom work and upper line neck pro- production on the Deering Vega and Pembroke's line. Okay, wow. So 27 years, it's, it's, it's you know, lifetime for a lot of rock, famous rock musicians. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> What, how'd you first, how'd you first get involved with working at Deering? Um, so it goes all the way back to when I was in high school. Uh, a friend of mine who was left-handed uh, and a guitar player wanted to make his own electric guitar. And uh, because ele- left-handed players often get charged more for left-handed instruments in the stringed world for no other reason than they're left-handed. So he he checked out a book of how to make an electric guitar from the local library. And uh, we thought he was all crazy for trying to build a stringed instrument like that. And a few months later, he brought this crude but playable electric guitar to school and was like, hey, I made one. And from there, I was uh, I always enjoyed building things and wanted to learn how to make an electric guitar because I was always fascinated by instruments. And uh, so went to his house and started making guitars with him. And we had, uh, after a while, kind of tried making our own go of it, uh, making guitars and decided we were horrible businessmen. And in the meantime, we had been buying a few parts from Deering Banjos way back in the day, truss rods and fret wire and other things. And uh, they're always nice people. And after we decided we were not good at being solo businessmen, we we should try and get jobs at Deering because they were a, a great little outfit and uh, very crafty and, and always very nice with uh, helping us out, learning how to make instruments. So uh, started here in 1996 and they haven't fired me yet, so I keep coming back. <laughs> <laughs> so how many of these guitars did y'all make and what was uh, was there a name on them? Yeah, in total, we made over 100 uh, electric guitars, acoustic guitars, basses. Uh, we made under the name Pitt, P-I-T-T. Uh, Mike Pitt was the name of my buddy that uh, I started making guitars with. And uh, every once in a while, we'll see one pop up on Reverb still, and it's like, wow, that's cool. They're, they're still out there being played, which is awesome. Yeah, they still work. I've had... Um... Have you seen one recently in person, like that's been being played and see how? Uh, not in person, no. Uh, 
Last one we saw in Reverb was a couple months ago. It was a Brazilian Rosewood uh, grand concert that we made back in 95, I think. And this was, yeah. how old were you? Uh, when I graduated high school, I was 18 and, uh, or 17, sorry, and started uh, at Daring when I was 19. So. But you're making these guitars in high school? Yeah, yeah. Wow. My senior year in high school. And then uh, do it though, really, just because this is like pre everything is on the internet, you know, right? Yeah, it was uh, trial and error, a lot of going to Guitar Center and kind of staring at, at guitars and looking at their construction and uh, really making salespeople excited when we had them pull down, you know, a PRS off the wall uh -huh. and, and <laughs> stare at it and really go over it and say, Hey, thanks, hang it back up, we're done. And they're like, what are you doing? And it's like, oh, we're going back to the house to make one. So it, it was uh, when we made our first acoustic, it was really a, a, a hope and a prayer. And uh, because, like you said, there wasn't any YouTube videos on this is how you do it, you know. Um, so it was a lot of uh, library research and and uh, going going inside with mirrors and stuff, looking inside the acoustics that we had laying around to try and figure it out. That's so cool. That's amazing. Yeah. I've never, yeah, I've known you for a bit, Chad. I haven't heard this whole story. So, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, and then, uh, and then you, you know, you started working at during the, you know, being a guitar builder is, 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 a, is tough business, uh, you know. It is. Very tough business. I mean, there's so many guitar companies that start and stop in the first five years that uh, because it is such a tough, tough business to get into. When we were first trying to get into it, we were uh, talking with other small makers and, and uh, we learned that if, if in the guitar world, you held on to 1% of the total sales in, in manufacturing, you were like the top dog which is crazy to think about in an industry, you know, like Taylor and Martin, I think currently are like three or 4% of the entire acoustic markets. You know, That's just incredible to think about how many makers are out there putting their own flavor and spin on, on instruments. And we're, how, how was it hard to make an acoustic versus an electric? Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, Acoustics are much more involved with their bracing patterns and thicknesses of woods and, uh, you know, how solid your neck is mounted to, to the body. Uh, the size and shape of the body really make a difference. The depth of the body, everything uh, contributes to the overall sound where electrics, it's to us, it seemed it was more about how uh, solid the body was what what kind of wood you were using affected the, the overall tone and and uh, sustain of the notes where acoustics it was like you can't adjust a lot acoustically you know all your tone is coming from the instrument you don't have uh, you know pedals and an amp that you have to plug into to to make it sound however you want the acoustic is is just a natural raw instrument that gives you like the truth of the build in every note you know right, right. 
um, how'd you take this? How did you take this knowledge over from building guitars into building banjos? And what's what are some of the similarities between, I would say, an acoustic guitar and a banjo? And what are some of the obvious glaring differences? Um, so, I mean, overall, kind of the neck construction of each instrument is kind of the same. I mean, you have the the heel, the peg head, the, the frets, the fret work. Um, back, back when I first started, the good time banjo was being first introduced. Um, so I was the first full-time employee coming into making the good time banjo. And um, a lot of the techniques using shaper cables and hand routers and a lot of hand tooling was the same that we were doing a little more involved because Darren had already been doing it for gosh I think 20 years or so um, so their 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 jigging and and processing was a lot more established right. than what I was used to using a little tabletop bandsaw and uh, stuff like that so it kind of elevated my my making a little bit better because I could learn uh, under Greg Deering's kind of tutelage because he's the one that trained me on how to make banjos um, refining my skills on on uh, making each instrument more precise and re repeatable I think when we were making acoustics each one had kind of its own flavor because we were you know, young and didn't quite have it dialed in sure. <laughs> as well as the banjo stuff. Um, you know, and one of the biggest differences between like an acoustic guitar and a banjo, besides the obvious, is is the pot assembly on a uh, on the banjo kind of needs constant attention and and care. Where an acoustic body, once it's made, it's kind of made can't go in and adjust bracing because you know your mid-range is a little off or something where the banjo is such a living instrument everything's adjustable on it and it makes it so fun to kind of work with artists of different calibers and tones and, and playing styles that you can really personalize a banjo after it's been constructed to find the voice that the artist is looking for right which is really cool is this is is this mostly head tension or is it a whole mix of things of tailpiece adjustment head tension and you know other 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 setup tricks yeah every, everything kind of contributes on the banjo from head tension to bridge construction to tailpiece angle adjustments um the the depth of the resonator if you have one um, even adjusting your action higher or lower can adjust a little bit of the tone with how, how much pressure the strings are putting on the head through the bridge. And that's why there's so many different bridge makers out there, the different bridge styles that uh, I've seen over the years. Same with uh, changing out the head material from going from like the standard bluegrass frosted top to a fiber skin head, let's say, for an old timey, more kind of plunky sound for the claw hammer crowd. It's it's incredible what you can do with a banjo voice-wise to, to really tweak it in and uh, kind of 
fiddle with all the different settings. Yeah, and, and have there been, you mentioned kind of tweaking the setup and tonal voice for different artists. Have there been some examples of after after the fact, after, you know, after they've chosen the banjo and bought the banjo? Have there, are there some examples that of artists that you've worked with that you've been able to kind of dial in a specific voice that they want to after, after, you know, after the banjo has been you know, played for a while? And... Um, I, I, I messed up somebody's setup once, uh, <laughs> not to drop names. <laughs> no, but it's, it's, uh, making, making a banjos, for a living at Daring, we try to set every banjo up as similar as we can. So we, we try to find a common middle ground for most banjo players and little tweaks once the player gets it in their hands can, can make it uh, their own. Um, and so um, <clears throat> we set our head tension to G, G sharp area. So pretty tight to get that uh, more traditional bluegrass kind of sound out of them. Uh, and I had uh, Tony Trishka in. Uh, he was in town playing a gig and stopped by for a string change and a new bridge and stuff. And he plays his head down in E, which is really, really loose for what I'm used to on a daily manufacturing basis. And so while I had it at my bench, I was like, oh, man, this head is super loose. I should tighten it up a little bit. So I did and took, took it back to him. And he, he strummed one chord and went, oh, my God. Did you tighten my head? Said, yeah, yeah, it was a little loose. And he said, that's exactly where I wanted it. So from there, it took me, you know, another hour to get his head back exactly where he had it and, and where he was used to, you know, his setup. And um, I worked with uh, other artists who really want you know, super sharp bluegrass notes. And so you got to take their head all the way up to almost an A into the B range, which is really, really, really tight. When is um, the break? Doesn't it break if you go a little past A? To like an it can. Um, the new head construction, well, I guess not new anymore, but we're using a crimp style head on our frosted top um, banjo heads. And with that crimping, instead of the epoxy glued in uh, ring that has been used for a long time, that crimping style, the tighter you go, the tighter that crimp gets in it. And it tends to really hold that head nice and strong. Um, we do only use it on the frosted top heads because those are, tend to be the ones that players really want to go tight on. So uh, we have had heads break, which is always exciting because uh, that kind of sets you on edge when you hear just a loud bang, <laughs> you know, as you're tightening it. Uh, tenors tend to do that a lot because we take them just that, that half turn too far. And you got to be real gentle with the frosted bottom heads when, when tightening up for tenors because those, those tend to break uh, going just a little too tight. And I've had that with that string tension on a tenor is so tight. Does that add? Yeah. Yeah. The, the string tension being so tight, the bridge position on our tenors uh, tends to be a little closer to the tailpiece. Oh. 
to get even more brightness out of the notes. Um, and all that combined tends to, to add just a little extra to the head tension. Uh, and, you know, you're walking a fine line with, with some adjustments, which is why I, I, when I talk to people about adjusting their banjos, it's like, go slow, make a small adjustment, and then play it again. S see how close you're getting. Don't just go all out and crank everything down as tight as you can. And um, so you mentioned you're talking about, uh, you know, Tony Trishka's banjo head being tuned pretty low. That's I know that's a you know common thing in modern, in the modern uh, five string three finger style players like Bela Fleck and and Kelly and Tony Ryan Cavanaugh. Um, how do you get that? Because their banjos still sound clear. They don't sound. Yeah. Ha is there something you need to do to counter counterbalance that looseness in the head to to keep it from just kind of turning into a muddy, you know, a, kind of a kind of a mush? Yeah, I think putting the uh, taller bridge on more of the eleven sixteenths than the standard five eighths we use. Uh, so you can get a little more down angle, break angle in the uh, tailpiece. Mm -hmm. So your your strings are putting a little stronger pressure on the bridge. Uh, really helps clean the muddiness up. We found that the angle coming off the back of the bridge, the strings coming down to the tailpiece, if that's too loose and it, it really allows the bridge to kind of flop around on the head. Gotcha. And, and so is there, let's get into like tailpiece adjustment. Like this is a mystery to um, a lot of people, you know, you can adjust it down and up, but there's also, you know, of the angle, but you can also adjust mm -hmm. it off of the tension hoop. Um, right. What does, what's your preferred setup for like where it is off the tension hoop? Um, some, um, I know some people will bring it all the way up and bring the angle all the way up too, where it's almost not doing very much. Of right. Um, the way we set it at, at Deering is we set it all the way down on top of the tension hoop. So it's touching the tension hoop pretty firmly. Um, and that's to kill any overtones that can be introduced from the tailpiece itself. Okay. Uh, we've, we've worked a lot with um, Jens Kruger and other artists trying to find a good way to get rid of some of the nasty overtones that can be introduced in banjo because everything's moving so much. Um, so our tailpieces are constructed out of steel instead of brass. So it's a little deader acoustically um, as far as vibrations um, and putting it down so it's touching the tension hoop, it kind of kills the vibration in the tailpiece and gives the strings more chance to ring naturally without um, anything extra being added to it. Right. So we'll put it down on the tailpiece and the top of the tailpiece parallel with the head. So we get a nice, not super strong, but a good, good break angle coming off the back of the bridge, um, allowing the bridge once the string is plucked to vibrate without moving anything else so that the string rings 
more true, I guess. Um, we see we see the elevated tailpiece is more kind of in the uh, old time style, where where people kind of like uh, less ring and more mid range and low end plunk to the notes. They don't want it to ring too long. You know, it's 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 going after that uh, old time. Uh, I like to call it middle of the chest kind of vibration, where where it has more uh, body to to that mid range and kind of takes the highs down. You know, um, and that's you know using also like the um, the, the, we call it the knotless tailpiece or the no knot style kind of tailpiece where it doesn't have that arm coming over the head mm-hmm. kind of really loosens that brake angle up and allows the, the head and, and bridge and strings kind of flop a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Uh, makes that claw hammer playing really cool. Yeah. If you're using a, a, a standard Deering True Tone tailpiece on a claw on an open back five string banjo do you set it the same as you would for a for for a resonator banjo leaving the factory we do okay because that allows the end user because we don't know a lot of times who these are going to right uh it allows them to kind of monkey with it a little bit to really find the voice they're looking for um so we'll we'll set it uh down on the tension hoop with the same parallel to the head. Yeah, you need a standard to standard for everything leaving leaving the shop. So then, then you can describe what to do. You know, to come right. if they want to change it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You've you've been at Deering a long time. What are some of the changes you've seen in 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 the banjo in in the banjos themselves, you don't have to get into detail and in, into like the full manufacturing process, but have you, what kind of tonal changes have you seen, especially through the band, the models that are like the same, like the Sierra or the good tone, mm-hmm. the ones that have been around, but they have changed. What are some of those changes? And, and do you think it's, you know, they've, everything's been going in the right direction? Um, when I first started on the good time, we were using, uh, uh, a plywood construction on the on the pot itself. Uh, it was five layers of uh, Baltic birch marine grade plywood, um, and they sounded good. They sounded nice. Um, and in, geez, back in two thousand one, two thousand or two thousand five ish, two thousand six, uh, we changed over from plywood to a three ply maple. Uh, rim construction and that really opened up a whole bunch of tone that wasn't there Mm -hmm. um that that three-ply maple construction allowed kind of the the mid-range to open up and more body to the notes Mm -hmm. that wasn't there so now when i get one of the old plywood styles in they sound a little thin to me right um, compared to what what we were what we're doing now, um, the neck construction is is still pretty much identical. It's a 
hard rock maple's mm-hmm. neck. Um, the the Sierras and uh, ones that use our our tone tone ring design, uh, bronze tone rings. Um, we've lightened the tone ring a little bit. Uh, all of them are now standard twenty hole tone rings, and um, we changed up a little bit of the uh, way we make the three ply maple rim underneath that tone ring. So that opened up uh, a whole bunch of the mid range and allowed for um, this trend towards more of a classical involvement in music, like Jens Kruger does, like Tony Trishka involves, you know, um, doing that kind of thing and finding uh, ways to introduce new, new, new voicing for the overall release of tone, I guess, that, that has been restricted for so long uh, because not everybody's playing straight Earl Scruggs bluegrass anymore. Right. Um, I mean, there still are those players and we appreciate them and, and we our banjos are adjustable to get that kind of bright, bright tone. Um, but allowing the construction of the rim assembly specifically to evolve a little bit um, has allowed people to find new ways of, of playing uh, and new voicings for the banjo that, that just weren't there before. And uh, it's it's been really cool and exciting to see where people are taking the banjo these days because it's it's kind of breaking out of the small boxes of only old time or only bluegrass into new avenues of music, which is just amazing and fantastic. And yeah, I think thinking back, the good time was you said 2005 or six. I think it was actually 2008 or nine because 2006 was when the 06 tone ring. Yeah. Is. Um, um, but there was the big, if for people looking back to see if they have which banjo, I think it was the, there's the Gumby Peghead versus the fiddle. Peg. Yeah. And that was kind <laughs> of a clear, it might, it might not have been lined up exactly, but it was, I think that was a clear very close change. Yeah, between 2005 and 2010, a lot was happening uh, with changing some of our construction techniques. And uh, it all kind of blends together at this point because yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, were, we, were, we were trying everything. Um, uh, like I said, we've worked with Jens Kruger. He's part of our R&D team. Uh, phenomenal banjo player, but also one of the banjo players that has really gone deep into why does this banjo sound different than this banjo? They both look almost identical, but one is just a little different in the mid range. And this one's a little better in the high range. How do we combine those to make something more versatile? Um, and so he was here quite a bit through that time with Greg running around uh, in circles saying, hey, Chad, we need you to try this. Hey, we need we need this tried. We need to make this different. Uh, and out of that, I mean, was born the new 06 tone ring, the, the bringing the, uh, all of our three-ply rim construction in-house. So we have a whole steam bending area where we bend our own rims uh, and glue them up. And uh, that's where the Eagle uh, tone ring was born out of which uh, 
blew all of our minds when we tried that one. Uh, and our new, you know, and the good time special tone ring was born out of the same thing. It was like, oh, what happens if we take this brass tone ring and make it out of steel? And it was like, oh, that adds a whole different voice to, to everything, too. It, that's where I really started to understand the, the amount of potential the banjo has mm -hmm. and, and really taking out, you know, uh, a brass tailpiece and putting a steel tailpiece on, how much that changed the background of the notes, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, we went from a brass tension hoop to steel tension hoops and uh, on, on some of our banjos and that steel tension hoop changed things again. The depth of the rim made a huge difference. It was quite phenomenal to see and start understanding how to move the the tone ranges of, of the construction. It, it's fascinating to me still what people are able to do with their setups to make make the banjo unique to them. It's, right, it's yeah. really cool. What are some some uh, tonal changes that have happened in recent years, and what are some tonal changes that maybe uh, either either you're looking at or or Deering's kind of looking at, you know, in the future? Um, one thing we we changed was the bridge construction. We went from a flat bottom bridge, what we call the smile bridge, where the the feet have a curve a radius to them uh, and what that did was balanced the strings to where uh, your, your first and fifth strings on a five string uh, had the same voicing as the middle G string did it didn't uh, we found a better contact with the head because the head you know being made out of uh, mylar and, and synthetics it sags a little bit with the flat bottom bridges we found the uh the middle of the bridge kind of stayed a little bit off of the head and so when we radius the bottom of the bridge it kind of was unbelievable how well balanced all the strings were you didn't have to drive your your middle strings harder to get the same voice out of them Right. as your higher strings outside edges you know um, that was incredible and and making the bridges in-house now um, of the same thickness and, and dimensions uh, the overall each banjo is more consistent it's yeah. not uh, it's not why does this Sierra sound different than this Sierra anymore it's we can we can hit that middle ground where it's this Sierra sounds pretty close to that Sierra. And, you know, this Calico sounds like that Calico, uh, leaving the factory, you know. Yeah. Um, messing with string gauges a little bit has helped uh, change things up a little bit. We went from using nine and a halfs on the first and fifth to using tens, uh, which brightened them up a little bit, but also um, balanced again the, the range of uh, all five strings right is there something is there something uh any any 
new models or, or, or tonal features that you're, you're kind of interested in, uh, in working on in the future and bringing out in the future? Um, we're always looking at something. Uh, we've been, we've been, uh, really looking at these top tension players. They're, they're, they're becoming more prevalent, which is exciting. Um, so we may start monkeying with that real, real soon to see if we can introduce uh, our own version of it and not try to make an identical um, product that, that's already out there. Right. Um, we, we like to kind of use inspiration from past makers and tweak it a little bit to make it unique to Deering. Um, so top tension route is, is something we're, we're going to start looking into. Um, we started making 12 inch rims. I don't know what's it been probably 10 years ago, which was exciting. Uh, cause that's something Greg's always, always looked at, uh, the, the old timey 12 inch rims really get that low end of the banjo mid range of the banjo to kind of go stronger than the, the, the plunk, you know, the, the plinky high end stuff, which is really cool. Um, we've been looking at different, uh, head materials as, as Remo and other drum companies introduce new head materials. We're always curious what that will do to the banjo sound. Um, so we've been looking at, uh, the skin tone heads and, uh, some other, other comp composite heads to see what, what that allows the banjos to do, um. So yeah, it's 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 a never-ending quest to find a different voice for the banjo, because we know someone out there is looking for for that one banjo that makes that one sound right. that they haven't found yet. <laughs> you know that it's what was interesting working with uh, Bela Fleck over the years a few times was he he get the sound in his head that he hasn't found yet, mm -hmm. and he he is relentless at finding that sound and how to make it out of out of the banjos which is incredible yeah yeah always it seems like the greats always have something they're going for and and really don't stop you know people like bela or jens like there's they want a sound and that they're gonna dial that in and keep searching and nail it yeah yeah which is really fun because uh it shows the unlimited potential of the banjo to belong anywhere uh, in music, you know, and that's, uh, yeah, Greg coming from the folk world, uh, and not from a traditional style, uh, really allowed him to start looking at the banjo's potential to belong in other styles of music, you know, rock and roll. We even have, you know, heavy metal bands using the banjo now, mm -hmm. uh, Hip hop bands are using the banjo now. You're starting to see it more in pop music. Uh, you'll hear it in the background, but uh, having having Greg allow the banjo to be pushed outside of what was considered traditional uh, has really opened up the the potential of the banjo to belong everywhere and right. not not only in. Appalachian style 
claw hammer or or straight you know three finger bluegrass it's right it's been uh it's been really eye-opening to to see the potential of not only the instrument but the music to evolve because it's it's never staying the same you always go back to the traditional styles as kind of a root platform but then you you can evolve those styles to to make the music move which is really really cool i mean you have someone like mark johnson with his clawgrass style where it's a combination of claw hammer and three finger and all kinds of technique that wow you listen to his stuff and it's just incredible what the banjo is producing right yeah it's an exciting time because because it's definitely the instruments being it's breaking of it all instruments have a certain you know just stereotype of what it's supposed to be and but a lot of them have been able to break out to a much wider you look at the guitar you know is it mm -hmm. it's not just it's through you know rock music you know it's not just an acoustic guitar playing spanish or classical music it's yeah <laughs> out everything and uh you look at the banjo kind of it, it's taken a while but it's, it seems like we're in a time where it can really start to be used it's breaking out of those barriers that, that it, yeah yeah it makes makes it uh real interesting to to work with you know a, diff a wide range of artists coming from you know, you know, straight flat pick and five string to combining three finger bluegrass uh, style with claw hammer to just, you know, strumming and, and stuff. It's, it's incredible to uh, be part of an industry uh, during kind of a, a, a new era in, in where it's going. Yeah. Yeah. What are some of your, some of your favorite models that, that Deering makes? Uh, my all-time favorite is the Vega 2. Uh, it, it is just got such a sweet, mellow sound. Uh, we made one a long time ago uh, out of walnut. The neck was out of walnut. The, the rim was a three-ply maple construction. But that walnut had a brightness and still a sweetness to it. It, it was just amazing my jaw dropped when we, when I got that one strung up mm -hmm. and, and played it a little bit. It was just like, Oh my gosh, this, this is the sweetest sounding banjo I've ever played. <laughs> uh, so I, it's, uh, the, yeah, the Vega two has always been, been a sweet spot for me. Um, also, yeah, the John Hartford model with the Grenadillo tone ring. Yeah. Uh, man, that Grenadillo over the uh, bronze tone ring, uh, and not to, not to be cliche, but it has this really warm woody sound. Mm -hmm. But you can still drive the strings to get a bright bright sound out of it, and it stays crisp and clean without getting super muddy. Uh, so I I find more of the mid mid sweet spots uh, more to my liking mm -hmm. than. Uh, than the really bright, you know, calico sound. Right. Uh, but even the calico sound has its place and, it, and it's a, an amazing bluegrass instrument. Um, so the, 
personal personal preference is more of the old kind of claw hammer sound uh, for me yeah yeah what are some of your you mentioned i'm getting in the woods like your favorite um tonal woods and you mentioned that walnut uh vega too um mm -hmm. do you have a, a certain favorite tonal wood or is it very on for each model like you know maybe a certain wood is the better for this model um well the wood makes a huge difference i mean it's so much of the banjo with the longer neck you know it's not like an acoustic joining the body halfway down the neck uh so mahogany has a much warmer tone than you know maple obviously the maple is a little harder and denser so it allows that brighter bluegrass kind of sound to come out um uh, walnut for me uh is kind of a sweet balance between mahogany and maple mm -hmm. um to where you can get a warm sound out of it but still it's bright and crisp and clean without getting muddy the, the mahogany sometimes uh depending on the you know what type of mahogany you're using or how loose the grain is in the mahogany sometimes that can get a little muddy mm -hmm. um, but it's uh yeah walnut's my my favorite balance of woods yeah. uh, my first good time i made was uh solid walnut so i made a five ply walnut rim with a three-piece walnut neck and put a fiber skin head on it and uh, i was learning claw hammer technique at the time and it it gave it that really nice kind of muddy but claw grass sound yeah that the that the standard good time was was not having um and i'm currently making myself a, a solid walnut uh vega 2 uh, using walnut a three plus and walnut rim yeah uh for when i celebrated my 20 year anniversary uh Deering is kind enough to let us make a upper line banjo for ourselves uh, and they cover all the cost of it uh, so they they're letting me make this walnut banjo now it's been seven years in the making i was gonna say it's a little, <laughs> getting on the 30th anniversary now <laughs> yeah well, i like to take my time you know? uh but yeah once the, uh, my put my metal parts are out for plating right now and once they get back i'll, I'll be able to put it together and see what happens because i haven't heard a walnut rim with that tubophone tone ring combination so i'm really excited to see what that does I know there are some uh, other makers who have done that, but I haven't personally heard what, what voice they express yet. So mm -hmm. I'm excited to, to see what happens there. And that walnut bends, you know, okay. It does, you don't have issues with bending, you know, three plies of walnut versus the standard maple. No, it, it, uh, it bends pretty good. Uh, I didn't have, really any cracking or breakages when I was trying to, to work with it. Mm -hmm. uh, it. It bent really nice. Um, we had, we did a uh, long time ago when we were playing with the different tone ring constructions and stuff back in that 06 to 10 period. Uh, we tried mahogany, um, but that was a little too dirty. Uh, 
on the rim itself. Um, I don't remember trying walnut. Um, so I'm excited to see what that walnut does in combination with a tone ring on top of it. Yeah. Bell sound great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're using uh, white Oak on our rim construction now with the uh, white Lotus and the Vega white Oak series. Right. And that's incredible. When we first did a, a white Oak rim, we put a tone ring on top of it. And I've never heard such an argument between two materials between that tone ring and the Oak underneath it. It was just a mess of tone and almost fighting between the, the two to for dominance. Uh -huh. But once we took that tone ring off and just used solid Oak, uh, it has got such a bright, clean sound to it uh, while removing, you know, four pounds of weight from the rim. Uh, it's a lot nicer on banjo players' backs, and it's uh, just an incredible, incredible sound. Yeah, that White Lotus is a great, uh, great instrument. I know it, you know, players always pick it up and they're just like shocked at how good it sounds, for, especially for bluegrass. Um, yeah, and it doesn't have, to, and it's light, and it doesn't have a tone ring on it. Yeah, yeah, I, I work so much on the upper line banjos uh, with tone rings that when I get to work on a white lotus or one of the good times, I almost throw it off my bench picking it up because they're so light and and easy to hold. Right. That it's, it's incredible to uh, that what what a difference a few pounds can make. Uh, Definitely. Uh, everything i want to get back a little into banjo setup um for custom for for listeners what mm -hmm. are some of the standard things that people should be looking at at their banjo you know to make it sound the way they want and what are some of the you know common issues that you see when banjos come in when you see somebody's you know banjo whether it comes to the factory or just out in the you know at a festival or something like that the the number one uncontested issue is head tension yeah. uh you know a lot of uh people when they get the banjo it sounds clean and crisp and clear and it holds intonation and tuning really well and they don't tighten the head ever and a year later it sounds muddy and washed out and you can't set your intonation correctly the tuning keeps slipping um it, it, it's like having a drum set and never tightening those heads you know your snare starts losing its snap your mm. your floor toms start sounding like a kick drum they're all floppy and dead and loose um the the head tension is so important on a banjo to maintain a consistency to it uh, so finding a drum dial or, you know, smacking the head, I use my thumb to, to snap the head, uh, close to the bridge to find the sound I'm looking for, mm -hmm. which is that GG sharp range. Um, it's important and it all depends on how much you play. It's important to stay on top of head tension Yeah, and, and it's. It's a bit involved for for 
people coming, especially from the guitar world, that they have to maintain their head tension because it's not something they're used to dealing with. But, uh, you know, pulling the resonator off if you have one and tightening up those hooks once a month, every other month is so important. Right. You know, not, and not taking it too tight because you break the head or you'll, you'll take it uh, past where you want it. And all of a sudden it's too bright and tinny and you've lost all your mid range. Right. So that's really something to take, you know, a little quarter turn at a time all the way around the rim, making sure all the hooks feel even um, to get it back to where you like it. I've had uh, artists on the road bring their instruments in and be like, something's wrong with it. It just doesn't sound like it used to. It's, it's missing everything. I'll take it back to my bench. Two minutes later, I'll bring it out with just the head tension changed. And they're like, oh my gosh, it sounds brand new all over again. Um, head tension is first. Second is, is the bridge. Looking at, at the top of the bridge, if you start seeing any sag in the bridge, it's time to change the bridge. It's, that bridge is getting super played out and stretched, and uh, it'll start losing its ability to, to transfer the vibration of the strings into the head. So staying on top of that is important. Again, that matters on how much you're playing and where you're at geographically as to how much that bridge, because completely untreated wood, how much that bridge can move and change over time. Um, so staying on top of, of bridge replacement is important. Uh, also changing the strings is super important. Uh, I, I've wanted to get a tetanus shot once or twice from banjos I've worked on because their strings are so rusted out and crusty that, that they they don't hold, hold sound anymore. They, they become so coated in uh, corrosion that, that it changes what the note's allowed to do. So uh, also <clears throat> changing the head, you know, they get played out. They get stretched beyond the point of adjustment. Um, How do you know the head is kind of played out? Um, one of the things I look for is where the neck contacts the rim. There's a cutout that allows for head adjustment at the end of the heel there, right? When the head touches the neck at the bottom of that cut, mm -hmm. you can no longer adjust the head. It needs to be changed. It's, it's stretched out so far that the, the head is now tightening against the neck itself. It's not tightening the head itself. Um, that's the first thing I look for. Like the second thing I look for. The neck a little bit there? There should always be a little bit of a gap underneath the ring of the head and the heel of the neck where it contacts the drum, if that okay. makes sense. You know, not where the fingerboard touches the tension hoop, but underneath the head itself. There should be always a tiny gap. Uh, if there's no gap, that head has been tightened to its maximum. Sure. Um, one thing to also look for is whether or not your tension hoop has gone below the head level. Uh, once that starts happening, hooks, the hook edges, especially on uh, bevel tension hoop styles like the Good Time and Boston have, 
and some of the Vegas have, that hook edge can start digging into the head material itself and start tearing the head. Mm-hmm. And, and that really damages the overall sound because you're no longer tightening the head, you're just ripping it apart. And what about when you get some, you know, it's there's a lot of things I know that it could be, but buzzing, you know, you've got a uh, buzz. buzz <laughs> oh, man. And, you know, you know, explain where's your first, because there's, there's multiple places where you can adjust the action on a banjo. Yes. Um, why don't you tell us the different places where you can adjust the action, which is your first go-to on a general, on a general buzz where it's not, where it's buzzing on like one or two frets. No, it's not a buzz across just like open strings and. Right. Uh, first thing, honestly, I look at is, is the head tension because the looser your head is, the lower your action goes. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, I have a pattern as to how I do banjo setup. Mm-hmm. First is head tension. Second is the relief in the neck because that's something that can move as well. Um, so yeah. truss rod adjustment is super important. When, uh, when we set up the banjos, we capo the strings at the first fret, hold the G string down at the 22nd fret, mm-hmm. and we're looking for a, a 10,000 gap or 0.01 of an inch gap of that G string above the seventh fret. The third string. Right, the third string. Uh, and we set the six strings up the same using the third string. On the six strings, um, the the neck is also a moving, you know, part of an instrument. It happens on guitars, it happens on basses, it happens on banjos, uh, even ukuleles can move. So that's something that, to keep an eye on if uh, you start getting buzzing, especially in the higher register, or you start finding it unplayable because the action's so high in the middle of the neck is looking at your truss rod and adjusting that, tightening it to flatten the neck out a little bit. That's the second thing I go after. The third thing I go after is how tight the neck is to the rim. Let me stop you there back on the truss rod. Okay. There's a buzz. You said you would tighten the truss rod to flatten it out, or would you loosen yeah. it in order for the strings to pull the neck more? And, and uh, To flatten it out, you always tighten it. Right. And that, but, but right. you would, if you had a buzz, wouldn't you want to do it the other way and loosen it? If, if you don't have that, uh, 10,000 scap, yes, that means your, your neck is moving backwards and you'd want to loosen the truss rod a little bit to allow a little curve in the neck, um, to allow the strings to vibrate, especially up towards the nut where the strings are moving the most, um, yeah, you want to loosen loosen that truss rod. And again, eighth eighth of a turn, quarter of a turn at a time at most. Don't go a whole hog and just loosen the truss rod all the way because then you uh, have created the opposite problem mm-hmm. of, of turning your neck into a, what we call a ski jump. And does the truss rod, will that curvature generally affect issues um, in the first like half of the neck, like the first seven frets or something? Or if there's something, or what? So it, it, if your neck's going backwards, yes, you'll you'll notice it immediately in the in the first seven frets, let's say. 
Okay. Um, if the neck has moved the other way where it's getting too much relief, you won't necessarily notice it in the first seven frets. That action kind of stays the same. It'll get a little higher, but not as dramatically as if you start playing up past like the 10th fret to like the 15th fret, 17th fret. It's going to be really high up. It's going to be super high in the middle. And you'll find, you know, bringing your fingers down in a chord, start having to lift way off the neck yeah. and pull really hard to get that, and you're that fretted correctly. Going up too, because it's a... Yeah. And that's also a good point is every time you tighten your head is checking your intonation. Because since the bridge is movable on a banjo, uh, when you tighten the head, it can pull that bridge a little out of intonation. Uh, so checking that and resetting the bridge uh, using the octave at the 12th fret, uh, making sure that that octave note rings the same as the open note and adjusting the bridge until it does is so important. Otherwise, your, your recording starts sounding really funny. <laughs> uh, and then uh, adjusting your, your coordinator rods because, you know, uh, making sure those are nice and tight so that your neck is making a really solid connection to the rim is, a, is another adjustment that's super important. Um, those rims can move a little bit. You know, they're wood. They're, they're constantly changing. Um, I've had banjos come in where... The action super high, and the only thing that needs to be changed is loosening the, the coordinator rod nuts at the tailpiece end and tightening the coordinator rod uh, to bring the neck more solid to the to the rim. Uh, makes the action come back down because the strings aren't pulling the neck away from the rim. Um, that that's a super important adjustment that needs to be looked after. Especially if you're traveling around with your banjo, that, that rim is swelling and shrinking with different humidities and temperatures. Um, if you're a traveling artist, it, there's, there's a lot, but it's all real simple adjustments that need to be looked after to keep the banjo consistent from, from one town to another. Yeah. Those are good tips. Yeah, I know everybody needs to be even if they know some of this needs to a refresher to remind them to yeah. check all these things. Yeah. Uh, another thing to look at with buzzing uh, too, is your fretware. Yeah. Uh, it, it's something uh, not a lot of people have paid attention to over the years. And, you know, strings are abrasive when coming down on, on frets. Uh, also, depending on how hard your, your cording uh, hand is uh, pulling on the frets, uh, it can start wearing, grooves into the frets um, to where they need to be replaced. And those grooves bring the string lower and you'll start buzzing that string on the next fret down because your action when when uh, fretted is, is so much lower that the string is now buzzing against the frets below it. So looking at your frets and making sure you don't have any big divots in them to where it's almost non-existent now uh, is, is another thing to keep an eye on. You know, I have seen artist banjos come in that have such a delicate touch of them playing the same banjo for 15 years and their frets still look brand new. Mm -hmm. uh, 
finding that sweet spot where you can chord and get the notes you want without white knuckling it is so important because you're you're not going to cause any damage to your hands and you're going to lessen the damage to the fretwork uh, to where you don't have to replace it so often well these are all great tips um thanks for being here um come on come sort of wrap this up with um what are some of your favorite parts about working at Deering? you've been there a long time what keeps you going and motivated to uh you know, show up at the shop every day. (laughs) (laughs) A solid question, because I have to kind of reflect on that sometimes. Uh, You know, after after doing any job for so long, it 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 does become, you know, a a blur of one day into another. Uh, But working with banjo players, finding different avenues for the banjo to go, uh, and seeing the instruments being used out in the out in the wild, we'll call it. Uh, I, I enjoy any time a banjo artist comes through town, going and watching them play, uh, even if their style isn't exactly my cup of tea. But seeing live music and the involvement of our banjos has has uh, really produced a kind of inner joy for me mm-hmm. because you know it, it's like it's like building a car and never driving one it's right you don't you don't get to see what enjoyment it brings to everybody involved uh, being at a concert and seeing you know uh, one of the artists transition from guitar to banjo you can feel an energy build in the crowd because they're excited to see kind of an instrument that you know, especially out on the West Coast isn't that common, but seeing an instrument come out that isn't uh, familiar to everybody produce sounds that, you know, uh, make wonderful music in different ways is, is so, I don't know, fulfilling to me because it's, it's just uh, seeing your product used is... Yeah, yeah just an awesome thing what was one of the last uh shows you've been able to go to of one of 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 an artist playing in a banjo that's really been you know that you really enjoyed that real you know so we had uh an artist that goes by amigo the devil come through uh and he uses the banjo kind of in a folky dark way uh where a lot of times uh especially coming up he travels with full band now but he was a one-man show for a long time uh where it was just his vocals and a banjo but his style of playing is his own he does a lot of strumming a lot of kind of three-finger integration here and there um but seeing him progress from that one man show to a full band and still control a crowd mm-hmm. with, with his stories and his music is, uh, was just exciting. I got to check him out. I'm not familiar with him. So yeah, he's incredible. He really is. Cool. Well, Chad, thanks for being here on the banjo studio podcast and thanks for making all those great banjos that we have in stock we 
you know, every time we get a Deering banjo, they're always, they're always, you know, they're set up perfectly and they always sound great. It's very, you know, it's not the, the consistency. I know you're really involved in keeping that consistency going is, is really impressive. Well, thank you, David. I appreciate you having me on. It's been uh, wonderful catching up with you and talking. Yeah, definitely. Hope to see you in person sometime soon. Absolutely. All right. I'll see you, man. All right. Take care.